In 36 CE, the Syrian governor Vitellius sent Pilate to Rome for trial and removed Caiaphas from office as high priest. So reports Flavius Josephus in the Jewish Antiquities. This is an unusual Holy Week for me because it's the first time I've ever preached on both Palm Sunday and Good Friday which gives me the chance to work with both of the Passion Gospels this year, in this case, Matthew's and John's. I'd like to take advantage of that circumstance and circle back to where we were last Sunday. It's not surprising to you all, I'm sure, that one of the aspects of John's passion story that always intrigues me is Pilate. As we learn on Sunday, Pilate was a profoundly cruel governor. Here's a quote from Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher who lived from 15 BCE to 41 CE. Pilate was a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as obstinate because of his corruption and his acts of insolence and his rapine and his habit of insulting people and his cruelty and his continued murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity, being at all times a man of most ferocious passions. A man of most ferocious passions. I bring this up again today because it gives us some context in which to hear Pilate's question to Jesus in John's Gospel. Pilate asks, what is truth? Can we imagine the sneer on his face? Can we hear the contempt of his tone. This was a man who was thoroughly cynical, entirely steeped in the ways of the world, and determined to use and abuse those around him to get what he wanted, when he wanted, however he wanted, to lie, to cheat, to harm, to kill. Why? For the most heinous reason of all, because he could. Let's take a moment to also consider the role of Caiaphas, the high priest, whom Josephus informs us was also charged in 36 CE. The high priest was not so much a religious leader 
but a Roman appointee who oversaw the temple. So by definition, a collaborator, a functionary bought and paid for by Rome. Knowing all of this, is it any wonder then that he and the other Jewish leaders of the time were afraid of Pilate? that they would have sided with the Romans in seeing Jesus as a troublemaker, that they would have chosen to do what they needed to do in order to survive. During my early formation, I had the good fortune of taking several classes at Union Seminary with Professor Brigida Call. Professor Kahl grew up behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany, so her scholarship is decidedly empire critical. During one of her lectures leading up to Holy Week, she asked the class a crucial question. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? My beloved friend Charlie shouted from the back of the class, Jesus! To which Professor Call forcefully replied, Leave Jesus out of it! <laughs> Just like you all, the entire class burst into laughter because a New Testament professor was telling us to leave Jesus out of it. But her point was well taken. She wanted to shift our thinking and to help us understand that the method of his execution was Roman law and order in action. And that even more importantly, the collaboration by the bystanders, by the crowd, by Jesus' own disciples, and by the Jewish leaders was exactly what every one of us would have done if we were in their shoes. So who is responsible for Jesus's death? All of us. Do you remember when I preached once about the interlocking concepts of the world, the flesh, and the devil? The theological concepts taught by 13th century Franciscan scholar John Duns Scotus of Scotland as a way of explaining how things operate among human beings. The world, according to Duns Scotus, is what we might refer to nowadays as business as usual, or the system. It's the idea that, sure, there's corruption happening all around us, but that's just how things work. And sure, there are rules, but let's be serious, the rules are for suckers, 
and those with power can do whatever they want. Sound familiar? That is Pontius Pilate asking, what is truth? What about the flesh? Too often, Christians have defined this category too narrowly as sexual impropriety, but it's a far more expansive concept. The flesh is about individuals taking advantage of the permission structures offered by the world to justify lapses in our own behavior, lapses of many kinds. Organized religions like to focus almost exclusively on this fleshy level of human corruption precisely because it helps them and us pretend not to see the other two. And lastly, the devil. The devil is any institution that we think of as too big to fail. Something that we worship in the place of God even if we don't recognize that we're doing it. A good example from our time, the Second Amendment. American exceptionalism, white supremacy. During the time of Jesus, in the Roman world, it was the worship of the emperor and the empire. This was literally mandated by the state. Most of the time, our world moves briskly along with those systems operating in plain sight, but not flamboyantly so. These forces are active and damaging, but their great genius is that they hide out just below the surface of our moral consciousness, out of sight and out of mind. In such times, even though not everyone is doing okay, enough people are that they can carry on by pretending they're not seeing what is happening right before their eyes. But sometimes, and we are living in such a time now, sometimes tensions build and those interlocking systems come to together to create a toxic brew that repeatedly erupts in violence. The gift of such times, as painful as they are, is that they open a window for us. They unveil the profound brokenness of the structures in which we live and move 
and have our being. The world, the flesh, and the devil were at work in Jesus' time, and they are at work now. To push back against them at any time always involves risk, but that risk increases during eras when the unmasking is happening, when the curtains are drawn back. Jesus' preaching and teaching challenged these systems at every level, just as the prophets in the Hebrew Bible did. The prophets were the conscience of the Israelite people, and Jesus located himself firmly in that prophetic tradition, identifying most closely with Isaiah. Listen to the prophets challenging all three of those systems. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea, pushing back against the world. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos, pushing back against the flesh. Do not trust in deceptive words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, pushing back against the devil. The prophets knew, and we too know, that in these eras of exposure and of unveiling, we are presented with openings. They are Kairos times, opportunities for God to make a way out of no way and to bring us healing. So it was in the Babylonian exile. So it is in our time. So it was in the time of Jesus. Recently, I learned that there was something even more extraordinary about the first century CE, that it was an even more extreme time of unrest and unmasking, and that this difference birthed even greater possibilities. So what was different? Something was shifting. If we look at the broad outlines of Jewish history, we realize that aside from a few brief periods of self-rule, David, Solomon, Omri, their geographical location meant that they were constantly under assault from empire after empire, a situation that was surely dispiriting, to put it mildly. From the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans, the Israelites were subjugated over and over again. What happens to a people who have been subjugated again and again? What happens when they realize that the world, the flesh, and the devil will seemingly never stop coming back in some new form. 
How do you hold on to hope in that situation? What was different in first century CE was that the Jewish people began to answer those questions in new ways. They began to imagine a new way of responding. We hear the grounding and healing source of their hope in the stories they told and still tell, stories that we also know and cherish, their record of God's saving deeds among them. We will hear many of them tomorrow night at the great vigil of Easter, stories of a God whose faithfulness endures forever, a God whose mercy is without bounds, a God whose love for all of creation is endlessly present and active, working to heal and repair. But what about the world, the flesh, and the devil? How did they address the persistence of evil? Listening the other day to a lecture by scholar John Dominic Crossan, I learned that during that crucial century in which Jesus lived, some of the Judean people started trying something different. Some of them chose to give up on armed rebellion. Some of them began to test what would happen if they used nonviolent resistance instead. So Jesus' earthly ministry was clearly a part of that longer experiment. And I say longer because it continued in Jewish communities well beyond the time of his death. The messages of this nonviolent resistance are abundant. The seemingly endless cycle of violence is not the only way. We can unmask the false promises of those who live to hold power just for power's sake. We can expose the ways in which humans in all cultures have forever and for all time used violence as a means to dominate others. Others that we manufacture into scapegoats, whipping up the anger of crowds to kill them, and then, and then, calling these killings sacred. When we pull back the curtain on that violence, we give ourselves the opportunity to stop pretending that we don't see what is really happening around us. Jesus preached these messages. He came into the world to proclaim good news to the poor, free the captives, heal the sick, give sight to those who could not see, and let the oppressed go free. Perhaps the greatest irony in the centuries of all the times Christians have lied and said that the Jews killed Jesus is this. Only, only 
by coming among us in the time and place when he did, as one of a people who were the guardians of a tradition that speaks from the perspective of the victim, could God's saving act be recognized for what it was, an outpouring of God's love? Only in this way could the cross become the medicine of the world. Only by entering this world as the good and faithful Jew that he was could Jesus become who he was. Jesus came among us in the midst of a people that were hungry for liberation, a people that were asking questions, a people with a strong tradition of lifting up the voices of the powerless, a people who worshiped a God who proclaimed, let my people go. Beloveds, these traditions and promises and hopes are still active and alive in our Jewish brothers and sisters. We are because they are. So as Christians, we take our place among the great cloud of witnesses, carriers of that same witness to the love of God working in this world. But we are not the only keepers of that flame. It is a blessing to know that we are not alone on this journey of liberation. For us, as Christians, we keep that flame by preaching the gospel of Christ crucified. That is our sacred story. For us, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection are the ultimate expression of God's choice to side with the powerless, with the voiceless, with those who are crucified. For us, Jesus came to overturn the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to forever unmask the lies that hold those systems up. That is who we are. That is our rock, our stronghold, and our strength. We are followers of a God who so loved the world that he became one of us and then gave up his own life to set us free. As we enter into this holy day and night, as we wait for the resurrection, may we always remember from where we came and where we are going. It is not good for the human to be alone, God said in Genesis. And then God made sure there were others and that we never were. May we bless those who came before us and those who still journey beside us. Let the people say, 
Amen.